This is Multinew Media. Peter Mahoney is the founder and CEO of the soon-to-be-released Plana, P-L-A-N-N-U-H, at Plana.com. Previously, he has served as the Chief Marketing Officer and Senior Vice President for Nuance Communications. You probably know Nuance as the company behind business software titles like Dragon Speech Recognition and Power PDF Document Creation and Editing Tools. Peter is known as the Nerd CMO and runs a blog of the same name at nerdcmo.com. A lifelong Bostonian, Peter graduated from Boston College with a double major in physics and computer science. That is impressive. Peter, welcome to Multinew Media. Great. Hey, thanks for having me, Chase. Really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. And and just a little bit of behind the scenes, we scheduled this conversation pretty last minute. And one of the driving factors is because you have this service called Plana coming out. Would you take a moment to let the listeners know who you are and what your business is all about? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, so I, I started Plana about a year ago because I wanted to solve a problem that I had as a marketing executive for 30 years, which was uh, wrestling with dealing with lots of different budget spreadsheets and never being able to reconcile anything, never having any visibility into what individuals were doing that rolled up to my overall plan. So that's why I decided I should create a cloud-based budgeting uh, budgeting system that allowed you to create, manage, and uh, collaborate on marketing budgets with your team uh, across the world. That's so. This is this is something that's born out of your previous frustrations with using spreadsheets. Yeah, it, it exactly was. It, the interesting thing that happens, Chase, is that uh, when you build a marketing plan, typically what you start with is is something that ends up in a PowerPoint document somewhere. Back when I started uh, in marketing, before people actually did everything digitally, you'd, you'd end up with a binder that was on your bookcase that had your marketing plan in it. And usually the, the central piece of it was a core set of business goals that you wanted to achieve. So you had that, and then you needed to, from that piece, create a, a budget. And that budget mapped to usually different departments that you managed or regions or product lines or something. Uh, so you handed out this budget and then the budget spawned other spreadsheets and every budget owner created their own little spreadsheet, how they broke down the budget. And then even further from there, they created more spreadsheets to track individual campaign. And as a result, possible to follow the thread from your original business goals that you had, like get more customers or make yourself more visible, and tie it to what was going on at the end of the line when people were actually doing something with their budget. So that total lack of visibility and control and alignment across the business is what motivated me to build Planet. I think that's excellent. As someone who, you know, I do a lot of corporate trainings in Microsoft Excel, and I, I love the tool and I love all sorts of spreadsheets, but you're absolutely right in the sense that everybody goes and creates their own and there's no standardization and then we modify things and we're looking at all these different metrics. And, you know, even if I go out with a company and I create, you know, a custom application for them within Excel using macros, we always hit that level where I have to say, you know, if you want more, we're going to have to custom engineer a piece of software. And that's that's definitely a pain point for everyone out there using spreadsheets, I think. Yeah, it's a really good point, Chase. And what happens is it sounds like you're someone who gets the 
power of a tool like Excel, but you reach a point where it gets so complicated that it gets beyond the de design point of what Excel was built for. Excel is effectively a tabular data tool. It allows you to get rows and columns of data, and you can do some more sophisticated things, obviously, but when you start to think about relational data models, to get a little bit nerdy, that you need when you start to think about how does a expense fit within a program that's in part of a campaign, that's part of a budget, that's part of an overall business goal. Uh, tying those things together across multiple users is just way beyond the scope of a spreadsheet. And the, the biggest problem is that you can do some of these things with a spreadsheet, but you need to be a super spreadsheet engineer. And what I saw was a huge need in the market for people to have a easy to use, super easy to deploy tool that anyone could use without a lot of technical skills or even help from IT. And, and, you know, I love that because with my university students, what I see is that you, you illustrated a pain point that marketing has. Uh, we can pull any textbook we want. We can run any simulation we want. But it's not until you're out in the field working with real campaigns that you have to make these completely justified connections between expenses and budget and objectives and goals. And that is something that that I absolutely struggle with, um, you know, teaching in my marketing courses. And I, I think that this type of tool is something that that, believe it or not, can help alleviate some of those problems just by showing you know, look at the dashboard, look at the interface. These are the types of metrics we're looking at. These are our KPIs. How have you been having success with the beta that you just launched, what, a, a couple of weeks ago? Or is that newer than that? Oh, it's newer than that. It's literally this week. So we've had our first users just getting up and running with uh, with the system. And uh, it's been great so far. I mean, we've had fantastic feedback from our early users. And the goal for us is to We've got a core study users who are working with the current version of the product over the next couple of months. And then in the March timeframe, we intend to have a much wider launch of the beta to continue to collect feedback, to make sure that it is going to model the kinds of budgets that people want to support at scale. And then we, a little bit later on in, in the spring, launch this thing broadly out to the world. So. Part of what we're doing, Chase, is trying to build a rational plan to get some good feedback to tighten the product requirements and the product capabilities and make sure that it can really uh, meet the needs of, of the customers out there. Uh, so that's that's the plan. But the early, early feedback has been really enthusiastic. So it's been a really exciting to see. I, so it almost sounds like you're doing even a little bit of A-B testing with the product itself through the betas. Is it, it, would that be a, a fair assessment? It is. It's a very good assessment. W one of the things that's really cool about building products these days, Chase, is that you can, first of all, cl cloud-based products make it really easy for you to try a few things out, test, get some feedback. Like you said, do some A-B testing with some different configurations and different capabilities and measure what the results are and, and refine things very, very quickly. And that kind of iterative nature of product development makes, I think, much, much better products for, for users out there. And that's what we're trying to do. The, the other thing that is different about this product, Chase, is that we're trying to solve something that has traditionally been solved by either spreadsheets on one end or sort of big enterprise software solutions on the other end. And, and we think that neither of those is the right answer. 
we think that the right answer is something that is a nimbler, easier to use, easier to deploy model, more like a Slack or a Dropbox, where any point in the organization can pick it up, throw away their spreadsheet and say, I'm gonna use this instead. And then it can scale and spread across the organization as you see fit. And to make that model successful, you really need a lot of this user testing to make sure that that the users are really excited and getting the benefit that they were expecting out of the solution. Well, one thing you could help me with is, you know, I think myself and and I imagine all of the listeners all agree that we can see the limitations of spreadsheets. But when you mentioned that we're looking for something a little bit more intuitive or and I know you didn't use those words, but something between there and the large enterprise solutions, I think I have the most difficulty of understanding what benefits we get by by scaling down. Um, and I don't even know if that's the right way to describe it, but by getting a separate tool that's very focused. Um, is there any way you could help me with that type of understanding of what would be the advantage of Plana over, you know, larger enterprise systems uh, that that may not do the same thing, but have some overlap? It's a it's a great question. And there are a few things that I tried to solve, because, again, I came at this as someone who was suffering the problem myself. And and I did it in a fairly complex environment. I, I was the CMO of a $2 billion software company where we did 100 acquisitions. So I was dealing with lots of change and lots of stuff going on. Uh, but I also had the advantage from that perspective to see the scale of different kinds of problems from different companies that we acquired. And there are a couple of common things that were problems with the existing systems that were out there that I had encountered. And the biggest one, the biggest one was that they were too complicated. And to get it off the ground and get it working, they tried too hard to really tie together every single little thing. And what Plana is not trying to do, by the way, it's not trying to be a marketing ROI attribution tool, because frankly, that's a very hard technical problem that requires not only smart software, but a lot of complicated deployment and in integration with lots of systems. And we just don't think most people are ready for that now. What we think the opportunity is, is to do a better job with the budget and make it simple enough to build a thoughtful, easy to understand budget where you're actually directing your money at the right business goals. And that's that's the most important thing. So the number one thing is that simplicity, easy to, easy to deploy. And then the second thing is it, it just, it doesn't require any help to get up and running. I, my design point was uh, was instead of of months to set up, I wanted minutes, and and that's that's the plan. I mean, right now I I, I can get a whole account set up in about two minutes. Uh, I think a typical user may take about five, but the goal is to make it really easy to get up and running and super fast time to benefit, because we think that's really important. Uh, and then the third thing is price. It's just really inexpensive. It's free to start. Uh, the first user is always free. So you, if you only have one user, it's going to be free. Uh, and then it's really inexpensive to add more users. So that's that's the mode for this product. And that's why it's so different from some of the bigger, clunkier enterprise systems out there. I mean, I, I absolutely love that pricing model. So and I saw that on the Plana.com website a little bit ago, uh, you know, earlier today before before we started this call. As you mentioned, you have individuals is free. Um, I saw now the published price right now. And I know that on your end, all of this is subject to change as you evolve the as you evolve the product. But the published rate right now is twenty five dollars per seat per month, right? 
Yeah, that's right. For the second and beyond user. Again, the first user is always free. And, and the feedback that I've gotten from early users is that, wow, that's less than I thought it would be, um, which is exactly what I wanted. Right. What I wanted is price not to be a barrier for people to deploy a system like this, because for for this system to be successful, for Plana to really do what it needs to do, we need to get a lot of people using it. So I wanted to reduce all the friction to make it really easy to deploy, really easy to decide, really easy to get value, and no big financial commitment to get up and running. And those things were really key design points for the product. And and to me, that seems more like, you know, the type of marketing tools we'd encounter with social media, uh, that pricing level rather. And so it, it almost made me scratch my head at first. I had a big smile and a big grin on my face because I love that. I believe uh, I believe in that pricing model. I believe in going a little bit lower cost can actually help a business achieve better results in the long run. Uh, there are there is some data that backs that up. I'm sure we we've all seen that type of information, but it made me think more of the social media tool type pricing and and um, makes me want to ask this particular part: Is that pricing? Um, you're, you're a marketing guy. Is that pricing part of a promotional strategy, or did it really truly only reflect? And not only, but did it reflect more of the operational side of what it costs you to maintain each seat and each organization, or was there was there a big promotional element to that? So the the current view, it's interesting. There are a few ways to get at price, and and I've done a lot of pricing research over my years in uh, working with a lot of different products, mostly technology products. Uh, and there are a few ways to do it. You can do cost-based pricing. You can do value-based pricing. You can do market-based pricing, competitive pricing. And, and the model we went for was we wanted a price point that was an easy decision. So that was the optimization factor we had. And like anything, we're going to continue to test and measure. But the early results say that's a really easy thing to do. The, the really good news, Chase, these days is that because we're building cloud-based software, the, the incremental cost of delivering software is relatively low. So that means that obviously we've got the cost of development, which is significant. We've got the cost to host the thing. It's in Amazon Web Services where the system is running right now. We've got the costs uh, to do the marketing and sales and support, et cetera. But the operational cost is so much lower than it used to be that we can actually price products at a point that doesn't have to consider covering the cost of delivering the service because these cloud-based uh, these cloud-based environments have made it so cost-effective to do that. It really becomes more like value pricing over time, uh, which is where we arrived at the pricing for the product. Well, and, and that leads me to a line of questioning that that admittedly, I want to say not everybody's comfortable with. So with, um, you know, we're a business technology podcast. Uh, we have a lot of people that are, you know, working with startups. We have people in marketing, we have people in, in development. All it, It's really a, a, a diverse set of business technology audience here. And so if someone's looking at something like Plana, what is the time frame that goes into making this type of tool? What's the budget and the development cost that goes into this type of tool? What are some of the resources that it took you as an individual, as the founder of this, to really get the ball ball rolling here? It's a great question. I'd be happy to share not super precise details, but I'd be happy to give you, I think, the information that will help your listeners. Uh, so first of all, this thing has been in development for a couple of years 
And the first period of time was conceptual. So we spent a lot of time, and I've got a couple of co-founders, uh, batting around, refining, coming up with the idea. And there's a lot of work on whiteboards that happens, making sure that you really have thought through your concept in a lot of detail. And that probably took a year for us to get through it and to really debate and arrive at the solution that we wanted to get to. Uh, and for us, the, the, we needed to do that before we hit a development cycle. Uh, development for us started uh, in, uh, in April of 2017. So we had a we had from a first start of development again that had some pretty clear specifications at that point uh, to a beta product uh, was about ten months to do that uh, and I you know think of the think of the development cost uh, in the uh, you know a little under a million dollars to develop a product like this uh, and and that's to get to. It's to get ultimately to what you'd call a minimum viable product or an MVP. You've probably heard the terminology before. Mm -hmm. uh, and we believe we'll get to that minimum viable product by the time we're going to launch publicly in June. And that means we're going to deliver valuable, scalable solutions that are production ready. But we know there's more and more and more stuff that we can add over time. And the trick is the trick is doing that and getting a product to the market that has value as is and, and then going from there. So that's that's the that's the model we have. And to give you a little give even a little bit more data, Chase, we've got about uh, seven full time developers working on the product. Uh, and uh, that's uh, that's the kind of effort that goes into this, along with some project management, some design in uh, all the other pieces to get something like this built. And that seems like it's been a good time investment. It's been a lot of challenges and a lot of opportunities. So what of what you just described, which part of that has been your favorite? You know, I love building new things. So so for me, the the idea of creating a concept and designing it and seeing it come to life, I just love that part. And And I've always been the kind of marketer who works very closely with product. In fact, I often had product development and new product introduction as part of my roles throughout the years because I really like that part and I tend to be pretty good at it. So the idea of creating is always fun. It's it's kind of like having a kid. Don't tell my three kids. <laughs> uh, but that that part of creation is fun. Probably the, the, the most rewarding piece of it, though, is when you see your vision come to the life life for the first time and then get some positive feedback mm -hmm. from the actual target audience. That is unbelievable to get. And, uh, and that's why I've been, uh, I've been really, uh, walking on cloud nine in the last week because we've got just some really excited feedback from our early users. Is it, is it difficult for you or others on your team? I know it's always this way for me. Is it difficult for you to kind of stop yourself? Like you find yourself constantly checking uh, metrics. So like you're looking at, okay, the beta, beta testers are engaging this many, you know, hours per day or this many minutes per day. And here's how many signups we have of people requesting information. Do you find it hard to pull away from some of the analytical side of it because it's just such a uh, a rush and such an exciting time to to see that positive benefit in other people's lives from your work. Yeah, it is. It is hard, and it's hard to separate. And I've always been the kind of person who is is on sort of a twenty four hour clock, uh, and uh, and I'm I'm constantly 
checking in and getting feedback and you get that little dopamine shot when there's a some interaction that you get from your product when you know that there's some human being interacting with it out there. So, so yeah, I'm, it's even I'm worse always, when it's real time, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a little dangerous sometimes. Yeah, You right? can't because put me get, on real time analytics. I will just sit there and stare like I'm watching television. Yeah. You, you do have to find time to pull up, uh, which is an important thing. And you know, that the, the great thing about uh, being a startup founder, Chase, is that you get to early stage, you do everything as you start to build the team. And and then you start to bring in some really great people. And as we've started to build the team, uh, it's, it's always, I, I love to be involved in every little thing, but it's even more rewarding to bring in someone who's smarter than me at that one particular area who can tell everyone but that's sort of the next great thing is being able to step away from some of those details, knowing that someone really smart is looking at them for you. Yeah, I just keep I keep going back to the whiteboards you were mentioning and and how amazing it would be to see, you know, you said that was about a year or so of development just to see the concepts that were there. Did you go all the way from, you know, picking your your target demographics and your user base to uh, user experience or w- what was the main work that happened in the you know, conceptualization and ideation stages? It's a great question because it varies based on the, that it varies based on the kind of product and the kind of market you're going after. One of the things that we were really focused on, spent a lot of time on was building the canonical model for a marketing plan. So we wanted to make sure that we had a super well thought out, uh, planning methodology and budgeting methodology that was flexible enough, but really encapsulated the right kind of of uh, good practices to make sure that we could get people to uh, to move their plans in the right direction. And a big philosophy for me, Chase, is is my my, my job should be helping marketers be better marketers. And and I think if we can if we can continue to deliver what we have with Plana, the idea is to move them in the direction of better and better and smarter marketing. And that's why we we talk about a, a big theme for us is simply smarter marketing, because we think that doing some simple things can can really help move the needle and help people build smarter, more effective marketing. And so a lot of the time early on was sp- spent on building those models uh, one of my co-founders is a is a marketing professor who teaches marketing, budgeting, and planning. And we had lots of great debates, of course, about the right way to do things. And we, uh, you know, there's a lot of wrestling to the ground. And I could tell you there might have been a beer or two consumed during the time. But I can imagine we, we got we got to the end of it uh, and uh, and feel like we have a really great solution. So that. That for us took more time than anything else. Well, it's that instructor personality in me that has to ask this next ask this next question, and that is, um, did you all use established models? I mean, as with he being a professor, did you go through and kind of start with a textbook, then then modify to fit your own needs, or did you all build your models from the ground up? We built from the ground up, and and, and some of it is my my co founder is a uh, not only a professor, but he's a practicing uh, marketing CMO for years. And he built a lot of his 
course material based on his own experience and has evolved it over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, of course, have done the same thing and have evolved my own philosophy. And it turned out, by the way, that our philosophies were about 80, 90 percent in alignment. Uh, and uh, and we just made sure that we could get get down to the detail to to get everything really together at the end of the day. Uh, so that's that's where a lot of the work came in. Th- there was a lot of work, though, Chase. I don't want to skip over this especially early on, that we spent a lot of time uh, thinking through uh, how we were going to bring the product to market and who the customer was and, and what they uniquely needed. And, and those are things because we th- there are lots of different ways you can a- address the need. And, and we thought that the way for us to have the biggest impact at the end of the day uh, was to, because we could have made a, another bigger, better enterprise solution that was deployed by the biggest companies in the world because we know how to do that. But we think that the bigger opportunity where we can move the needle is to build something that can be massively adopted and deployed across all the small to medium-sized companies out there to start especially, and maybe departments of big companies. Uh, So we spent a lot of time working with those kinds of concepts to refine our view of what the market was we were going after. And what were some of the core needs that you identified when you when you you know came up with a target market or a demographic or a persona? What were, what were some of the the core um, needs that those individuals had? Well, there are a few things that are universal that people have, and there are a lot of things that are unique. And the the universal things they need to do is one: there needs to be a a simple way to get visibility as you distribute a budget. So that was sort of the universal pain. As I, di- as I distribute a budget, I need a simple methodology so I can tell exactly how much of my budget in each part of it is in plan stage, is committed, is, is already spent, is consumed, and how much nobody's even thought about. So that sort of core of understanding the status of your budget is something that was really common across everyone. Uh, the The other thing is the idea of collecting things get together into groups, into programs and campaigns. It, so it's not just a it's not just an expense you're tracking. It's actually something that's supposed to drive a business result. Uh, and we have the ability to track track results. In fact, you can you can track as many metrics as you want. Uh, we've got a bunch of standard metrics and also you can create custom metrics because what one of the things that I found, Chase, is that the the idea of of uh, tracking things and, and tracking a, a result for a campaign is really is is a central thing to uh, to look at the effectiveness of of your marketing, whether you're actually achieving your business goals. And sometimes you need to track something that just doesn't exist in any system. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a goal of uh, signing up, uh, you're trying to do a, a vertical account-based marketing strategy, as an example, and, and you want to get, uh, you know, seven new customers in the insurance industry. It's not like there's some standardized system that has the number seven that's going to pop out. You need a place to put it, and you need to be able to come up with a concept that that's the thing to track. Uh, so that kind of flexible metrics tracking was also important. And, and then the other piece is people really need to. The, the, one of the most painful things for marketers is is synchronizing what they see in their plan with the financial systems at the end of the day uh, and uh, making sure that the actuals that were spent 
match what they think happened in the budget because for forecasting, that's a really important thing. So those are some of the key things that were universal that people were looking for. It seems like the objective, if I go back into layman's terms here, is that you're looking at what is it that people are trying to accomplish with their marketing campaigns. You're looking at their goals, their objectives, their targets, their metrics, their KPIs, all of that. And then you're looking at the budgeting side and saying, how do these two come together? of how do we make sure that not only, you know, we, we can ask, are we meeting our goals or not? Are we meeting our targets? But we also need to know, are we meeting our goal and how these two overlap? Is is that um, is that what this tool will help somebody do? Yeah, that's very well said, Chase. And, and that is the fundamental gap that people have. As I said, people come up with a plan, they come up with goals and they put them on a shelf, whether it's a digital or physical shelf. And then they go and they build a marketing plan and and they have a budget. But connecting those two and making sure that you have the context of the plan when you're building your very specific rollout of your marketing actions is really critical. One of the things that I say to people is that if if you want to hit the target, you got to start by knowing where to aim the gun. And that comes from someone who knows nothing about guns. Even I know that much. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's, so it's, it's a really important concept that as you're building a plan, you need to do it in the context of the goals that you have. And, and there's a really interesting thing that's happened in this world, Chase, because there's this vast proliferation of measurability because of digital. And what happens is you start to see marketers, they measure what they can measure. So what I mean by that is that you'll see someone come up with their quarterly report for their marketing results, and it shows these beautiful charts and graphs about their Facebook ad campaign, which is 7% of their overall spend. And the 93% is sort of left for, oh yeah, there's some other stuff that we did. But people, (laughs) and sometimes they're just focused on the wrong thing. They'll tell you, hey, this is my open rate, and this is my conversion rate for this page. But the reality is you need to tie those very specific monitoring metrics back to your overall business goals so that you can understand why you're doing it. Obviously, a campaign practitioner who's making sure they're optimizing a Facebook campaign, as an example, should know the the uh, the cost per acquisition for one audience versus the other. But the thing at the end of the day is you need to understand how you relate that to your overall goals, which are probably related to growing customers or revenue or retaining customers. When you and I are speaking the same page behind the scenes and we don't even know it uh, before, you know, being able to have this conversation because one, that makes so much more sense to me when I look at the planet.com website and I'm looking through the materials and I see that, you know, that you're talking about tracking results versus targets and that this is not intended to be an ROI tool. And so one that helps that makes so much sense. And then two, you know, in the, in the marketing classes that I teach, I have such a difficulty of convincing students that, you know, it's not only that your objectives need to break out from your goals and they also have to go in the reverse. When you accomplish that objective, it has to help you then achieve the goal. So, you know, and I'll see plans come out and and I, I think I'm just mirroring exactly what you said in different terms. So let's say, you know, you have 
your 7% of your, your marketing effort is towards Facebook likes, like you mentioned, and you say, well, look, we've accomplished our objective, but you, you kind of have to question at the end of the day, did it really help you do that? Or were you off chasing that thing for some other reason? Did it really, truly tie back to what you're trying to achieve or you know, did you run the wrong campaign? And sure, you you got the metric, you hit the metric, but for the complete wrong purpose. And that's exactly right. You're thinking about it uh, precisely the way that we do, Chase. And the the, the one thing that we try to do, as I said, we, we have a goal of trying to make people better marketers. In the best practice, when you're creating a plan, you start with your business objectives. And then what you want to do is take your objectives and start by creating broad campaign themes. And these broad, broad thematic campaigns are the things that actually probably have uh, success metrics that are closest to your overall business metrics. Uh, and in those campaigns can be filled of individual programs and tactics that may have much more specific things. The reality is with the complexity of marketing today, what you need to be able to do is take the individual tactics, bundle them together into broad themes show how those metrics roll up into these broader metrics that impact your business results. Because at the end of the day, open rates and click rates have to be optimized for the delivery of a specific tactic. And those tactics in aggregate will drive KPIs like customer pipeline, new customers, revenue, things like that, that are very closely connected to your overall goals. So coming up with that hierarchy of measurement is something that we built around Plana to make sure that it, it organically organizes your information so that so that it's it it makes that thinking happen or makes it a lot easier for that thinking to happen within a marketing team. I absolutely love any tool that can that can, you know, do that and, and instill in that because have you encountered and, and this is a little bit of a loaded question, admittedly, so I'm not trying to go for a gotcha. It's just I do truly wonder, have you encountered um, you know, in the in corporate life or as a startup, have you encountered that it's difficult to take, you know, maybe even students that come from me or or from, the, you know, your your co-founder, the professor? Is it sometimes difficult to take the students that we we churn out into the world, so to speak, and get them ready for the realities of marketing? Is there a disconnect between, you know, so-called, you know, really social natives and still understanding how to interact digitally. So I hope that's making sense. I know I'm skirting around the issue, but I guess I'm just wondering, do you see a disconnect between um, those two points in life of the student and the entry level? I actually see, I see a lot of great new talent coming out of universities these days. And, and the, my firm belief is that you actually to be a great marketer over time, you need to be able to understand the detail, which these new students are because they're total digital natives, but you need to be able to contextualize that and connect it to overall business goals. So the university programs that do a good job with that, helping people understand the detail, but then understanding how it relates to these overall goals create really great marketers. And, and the good news is that if you can understand the detail, it's actually pretty easy to to when you get in the real world and you can get introduced to maybe a good, strong mentor who can help you understand how this applies to the business. I, I think that is is taught pretty quickly through some in the field experience. 
So I'm, I'm actually, I'm really excited about some of the young marketers that come out. In fact, I, I tend to learn a ton from them uh, when when you get a new marketer who who's just been super deep in in a new tool or technique that I may not have been uh, been exposed to before. So I, I think it's actually great. I don't I don't think it's a problem at all. And and I think we're going to have a a renaissance of marketing in the next couple of decades because to be a great successful marketer in in the future, I think you have to be someone who's a total digital native and someone who is creative and thoughtful and can tell a story and connected to business strategies. And I think this crop that's coming out has the best chance that I've seen in being able to handle all those pieces. I, I love that answer and I agree wholeheartedly. And you know, it it's it's unique because or in in a unique point and an interesting point, because I think that ties in the storytelling element, ties in with what you you kind of evangelized through your uh, nerd CMO brand and your nerd CMO blog. And I'm I'm a little bit curious about your thoughts on whether these digital natives and these social natives coming into the the workplace now and who have been progressing through for maybe the past five, ten years, if they're getting an advantage or a drawback from this whole democratization of technology. So maybe shifting to the technology side a little bit. On your blog, Nerd CMO, you you talked, uh, you spoke, or rather wrote about um, the need for all of us to do a little bit of content marketing. You didn't say it in those particular words, but but kind of espousing that idea. Do you think this is a a, a large cultural change pushed along by technology, or or what's going on here under behind the scenes? What's going on in terms of of this constant push to content marketing? Well, th- there are a few things. First of all, I think the because of the access of information so broadly through connected systems and devices, you you get more empowered consumers to do their own research, which necessitated this concept of content marketing. And, and HubSpot did probably the best job in in identifying and then in, in naming. Uh, the whole inbound marketing concept. Yeah, they are just absolutely uh, um, amazing at that. Yeah, in, in coming up with the idea. So I, I think that the the idea has been around for a, a while, really since the web existed. People didn't have to go through a salesperson to get information. They could actually look around and do their own research. And as information expands uh, significantly, then they they have a lot more options to to research what they're looking for before they go. So so that's really necessitated uh, content marketing. I think the challenge that I see out there now, Chase, with content marketing is that is that there are people. Some people do content marketing for the sake of content marketing. They say, oh, I have to do this, so I'm going to create a bunch of junk, and <laughs> and they have a bunch of irrelevant, not interesting. Uh, material or it's just product advertisement stuff that's thinly disguised. Right. I, I think the best content marketing is sincere uh, and and it really attempts to help illuminate an issue or topic for your customer, for your audience and, and helps be informative. Uh, and, and it's one of the things that is really exciting about me, exciting to me is that if you look over the last uh, 10 or 15 years as this inbound marketing world and SaaS solutions have come out, the the power has really sh- shifted to the user. And it's really forced companies to, one, be more educational pre-sales, but then two, because 
products are much more uh, subscription-oriented products, meaning that the customer pays you as long as they get value and stops when they don't. It really encourages people to be educational, provide meaningful content up front, and then continue to deliver value over the time and get the product better and better and better over time. So it really aligns brands and people who make technology very much with their customers in, in a way that's never happened before. And I think that's one of the most exciting, thing that's, exciting things that's happened in technology over the last couple of decades. I think one of the the most insightful things that I that I've heard in a very long time is actually uh, where you almost made a mistake earlier, but you caught yourself. And I don't know that the average per, a non marketer is not going to catch what you did. So I want to call it out. And so if anybody's listening and you're a marketer, scroll back to this. And so uh, Peter, what you did was you you were talking about content marketing and you started talking about making you know valuable content for and you started to say customer, but then you caught yourself and went back and said audiences. And that I think, you know, you talk about the mark of somebody who's practicing what he's preaching, right? It's not just about the customer when you're when you're creating content marketing, you're really truly engaging audiences, whether they're your customer or not, and you're putting value into the world. And I just I, I mean, when when I heard you do that, I just I, I grinned from ear to ear. That is that's a true sign of practicing what you preach. Well, it's it's funny. One of the things that probably made that top of mind for me, Chase, is that I'm in the middle. So I'm I'm in the middle. We've recently implemented HubSpot internally, and uh, and I'm in the middle of doing all of the persona development mm-hmm. for all the different audiences that we have for Plana. Uh, because if you think about it, there are a whole bunch of people who are uh, you know everything from uh, CMOS to marketing directors to marketing managers to IT people to marketing ops people. Uh, and so even within a what seems to be a relatively straightforward product with a targeted audience, there, there are a variety of different audiences who have an interest in this kind of a product. And, and it really does make you think about your content and all these different audiences and how you communicate to them to help educate them enough so that they can, again, I said earlier, the concept of removing friction, the whole idea is to, is to get all of the angst and all of the potential friction out of the way of someone actually jumping in and signing up and starting to use it. I I think one wonderful persona uh, that is going to gravitate to you, you that or, or, I, I guess my prediction, when you look at your analytics, I have a prediction that digital nomads are going to gravitate towards you because they tend to be, you know, freelancers, contract workers, small business owners, startup generators. And I think this type of tool, especially starting with that, you know, first seat free and then as they scale up, as it's not just them in the business, they can procure additional seats. I almost want to make a prediction that that uh, if we talk, you know, in a couple of months or in a year or so after the product is launched, um, I, I almost want you to hold me to account and see if my prediction is correct, because I really feel feel like the digital nomad crowd and the startup crowd are going to completely um, gravitate towards this type of solution. Well, I, I hope so, Chase, because that that would be, I think, fantastic for us and for them in that uh, it we designed the tool so that it could be. And I was very specific about making sure that we had a tool that could be used and adopted, especially by individuals for free. Because I think, one, they're going to get a lot of benefit out of it. Uh, and, and two, we're going to learn a lot 
from uh, from what they do, uh, and and it will p- continue to point us in the right direction. So I, I think it's a really uh, so I hope you're right. I hope that we get a lot of people interested in doing that because I think we're going to learn a ton from that. The other really interesting audience, uh, Chase, is that I was educated very early on from some of our early beta customers that that there are many, many, many uh, small to medium-sized marketing agencies that manage budgets on behalf of their customers. Mm-hmm. And, and this tool is perfect for them because it allows them to set up the budget and then grant you know visibility so they can just view it or edit capability for one or more people in their client. And, and it's a great way to, uh, to collaborate with people across those kinds of bounds. So there's some really interesting use cases I think we're going to find as we get Plana out in the wild a little bit more. Well, I know I've, I've just signed up for the beta because I see this. Not, not only can I use it here for the podcast, but also, um, you know, as a visualization tool, once I feed that information and in, you're talking about a five minute setup, I feed that information in and then I could conceivably, you know, as long as I'm comfortable sharing that data, I could put that up on screen for my students to see, you know, this is the process. This is how we, we track these things. And if we're looking at, you know, revolt, results versus targets, this is how we attach the budget to it and those types of things. And, and so I'm I'm. I'm thrilled about that. I know I'll be looking at it, and I hope I hope that a whole bunch of people do uh, as well. Because not just trying to promote your service, um, but honestly, I think you have a unique product offering here that's valuable. Maybe not to everybody, but to a, a very large portion of small, midsize, and even large enterprise marketers. If you don't mind me taking a little bit of a tangent here for a moment, I do sure. have to ask something, and I'm, I'll tiptoe lightly here, but you stated publicly about six months ago on your blog that um, your wife does not like the name of the service. She hates it. <laughs> I absolutely loved I had to. So my wife and I have had conversations similar to this, and I think anybody in business with their spouse, with their families, with their kids, they've had these conversations, and I admire the fact that you posted a screenshot of the text uh, conversation so much that I actually, you know, tapped my wife on the shoulder and I said, you have to come see this. You had this. This is us. This is us talking about anytime I name anything. So what what has happened as a result of that now that you're launching under the name Plana, which, of course, is, is, you know, because you're Bostonian and making it sound like the the Boston accent. How how is she taking that now? Well, uh, it's it's kind of funny, and I'm glad you brought it up because it's it's something that does come up all the time, especially when I hear, wear my Plana baseball hat or T-shirt when she rolls her eyes when she sees it from time to time. I'm glad it's not uh, just me that has that that situation with my friends and family. Exactly, and it's funny. Naming, of course, is a really interesting thing, and we came up with a million different ideas over time. It's always challenging to come up with something that is ownable. Uh, and evocative of what you're trying to do and and relatively short and and coming up with something where we could own the domain the Twitter handle the Facebook page we could own all those things uh, and it was an ownable name so it 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 definitely checked a lot of boxes but it was a little bit of a sophomoric kind of nerdy uh, wink to the uh, to the Boston accent and it's it's a little bit of irony in there because I actually grew up in Boston, but I don't really have much of a Boston accent because my parents are from upstate New York. And I, so I think I never really got it the same way. Uh, so that, that makes it even a little bit funnier. 
uh, but my wife doesn't always appreciate my sense of humor. And, and, uh, and but yes, I, what, what she said is, uh, what I told her in the end is that, uh, if we're, uh, if we're really, really successful with this, we'll either be able to sp spend as much money as we want rebranding or you're not going to care because it's, it's worth a lot of money. Right. And that's so ladies and gentlemen listening, if you're having that same issue with your spouses, with your significant others, your family, your children, whoever, your business partners, even just just right. Look for the marketing possibilities. Um, and, and plus, I think a lot of people forget that most folks are not going to ever be saying honestly saying the name of the company aloud, because I mean, how many times do you I mean, other than Facebook and Google and the, the, the you know, types of Sites we talk about how many times do you sit down and, and talk about a lot of the dot coms you use you you never utter them you never speak them aloud but they're brandable the the visual of them it's 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 a wonderful thing so um it's a shame she doesn't like it but we've all been there right yeah i think she'll come around eventually she's excited now actually to see it uh, get out in the wild obviously and she likes to poke fun at me uh, for for lots of different things, but this is just one of them. So we needed a little bit of a, of of some tension to argue about after 25 years of marriage. So so that's that's probably one thing we'll keep out there as the uh, as as our ongoing discussion point. It's something I hear from almost every person who works with a startup, creates a new business, spends something off, comes up with even even creative work. So if you're creating a web series. It's that's a very common concern. So, I, again, I really appreciate you putting that publicly out there so that other people know that it's not just them. And um, if it's OK, I'd like to end with talking about Nerd CMO and how that came to be. Maybe a little bit more about your background that led you to self-identify as Nerd CMO. Oh, sure. So it's funny. I, I started that concept a couple of years ago, uh, and it was it was a couple of things. It really started as a creative outlet for me because I like to like to create, I like to write, and I like to share my ideas. and And I really enjoy working, especially with young marketers, to to help them be better. and And in in the process, they end up helping me be better. So. Engaging a community of marketers was something that was always exciting to me, and that's why I launched the Nerd CMO site. The, the, the name was kind of obvious to me. It's funny. I'm a bit of an accidental marketer. What happened was when I graduated from college, I, I had a double major in physics and computer science, and I had no idea what I was going to do with it. I, I knew I wasn't, um, wasn't going to be a physicist. Uh, I wasn't quite that gifted to get a Ph.D. in phys physics. Uh, and because uh, you could really tell that there, there were different human beings from what I was, but I was smart enough to get through that. And and uh, uh, I ended up taking a job at IBM. And when I worked at IBM at the beginning, they uh, they told me, hey, there's a job in marketing we think you'd be good at where I, I actually applied to be a, in a technical job. And I said, OK, well, that sounds interesting. I have no idea what marketing is, but I'll try it out. It turned out about a month after I got there, I realized that when IBM said marketing, they actually meant sales. Mm -hmm. So I had no idea that I had landed myself in a sales job. Uh, and uh, and then fast forward a few more years, the, the second company that I went to, uh, I was in sort of a sales job. And they, uh, because I happened to be someone who understood things and understood complex technology because of my background, 
there there was an opening they they uh, had to get rid of the former head of marketing of one of the divisions and they said hey will you do it and I said sure so my first job in marketing was running marketing for a small division of a tech company uh, and but it was it was really kind of an accident and, and I think the way I got there is uh, is because I'm uh, I'm a little bit nerdy and I come from a fan a family of of kind of nerdy people. My my dad was a PhD physicist, and my two older brothers are both PhD scientists. So I'm the first one no, to really. No pressure. Out. No pressure at all. Exactly. How how are the you know the holidays in that type of environment? What what's the talk about? Uh, a lot of math. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's where I flaked out. I mean, I'm like you. Yeah, I, I I love physics. I I thought about it, and in high school, I bought a book on uh, I think it's called The Fundamentals of Astrodynamics. And um, it was just, nope, I, I noped out right then. So um, uh, you definitely do love the math side of it, it seems like. Uh, how how important is that to you in the marketing discipline? I mean, I've seen people gravitate towards certain business disciplines because they think, oh, I won't need to use math there. And then we start talking about conversions and we start talking about all these other things. So how important is that side, the analytical side to you in marketing? Oh, it, it's critically important. And I think marketing will become even more and more analytical over time. If you think about it, by the way, most of the math uh, that is used in marketing today, uh, you learned in the fourth grade. It's not very complicated. Right. Right. Um, and but what's coming up is some really interesting capabilities when you start to apply machine learning to some marketing decisions. And in fact, it, that's it's one of the things that I'm most excited about with the vision of Plana. Uh, so part of what we're trying to do is we're starting by building a standard framework where we can say we know what the marketing goals are and we know what the uh, we know what the uh, results are that they get. And we know we have a standardized framework of data that is different kind of marketing tactics and approaches that we use. Uh, and if you have uh, goals and you have outputs in a standard framework where you apply lots of data, that's a perfect condition for uh, a, mach a machine learning problem, which means that we can start to do things like predict outcomes, make specific recommendations when you apply machine learning algorithms, and that requires a much higher, <laughs> higher degree math than what you see in calculating a conversion rate. Right. Right. And I, I, that is definitely an area that I think I'm focusing on. It sounds like you're focusing on, um, you know, machine learning just has the potential to do so much for our software, for our marketing, for our operations. And that my first encounter with it was, you know, I never thought I would use my my graduate level operations research class and operations management, which, you know, it boggled my mind that there was a field of math called that. And when I got to my first corporate job, it was that it was all multiple linear regression and um uh, I, you know, linear programming and it was all solving for multiple variables in a, in a trial and error way. And I think that machine learning and quantum computing in combination, um, boy, once we can track that uh, so-called traveling salesman problem, think what recommendation engines will look like then, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a great time for that. And which is why back to your point about these, uh, young digital native marketers coming out, I think they're, they are in a great position. And what I always tell young people who are still in school is uh, if, if you want to get a job in marketing, uh, first make sure you take math 
uh, and make sure you take some programming uh, classes. Even if you don't write code for pay, you should have a clear understanding for the way the uh, that the, the computing concepts work and how stuff all fits together, and you should understand the math at a reasonable level. Uh, and if you mix those all together, I think you're going to be a super successful marketer in the end because that combination of skills is hard to get. And if you have the more you have of those, I think the more successful you're going to be in the long run. Well, thank you for that advice, Peter. You're now making it to where I have to go assign this episode to all of my students because I you know <laughs> nobody can say it any better than that. And and so thank you for that. Thank you for the work you're putting in on Plana. I think this is going to be a great tool for a lot of people in marketing who need a tool like this and who are tired of spreadsheets. And thank you for coming and joining me today on the show. I, I appreciate it. I'd love to consider you a friend of the show and, and follow up with you in a few months, maybe a year or so, and, and just kind of see where you're at and, and maybe even continue that conversation on machine learning, artificial intelligence and how Plana is uh, uh, incorporating these evolutions over time. Well, that's really exciting. I'd love to do that. And uh, and I will be listening. I've just subscribed to your show, so I will uh, continue to uh, hear all the great stuff that comes out of you. Well, um, we're gonna tr- we're gonna work hard to not let you down. Sometimes we 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 go off our rocker, so to speak, but we'll 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 try to keep our our content strategy as high quality as possible. Excellent. Thanks, Peter, for joining me. All right. Thank you, Chase. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, take care.